Um, well, we jump back into our summer series called New Testament Survey, and this is where we're taking one book of the Bible each week, and we're just exploring what is the central theme or themes of that particular book of the Bible, teaching on those themes, kind of wrapping our head around, well, who are the people that Paul was writing these letters to or who Peter's writing this letter to, and so just trying to, trying to get a sense of that. And so um, this morning, we're going to take a look at the book of Ephesians. And so I want to give you just a little bit of background about the book of Ephesians. Um, Ephesus was uh, the city where Paul writes this letter to. The church was there in Ephesus. And Ephesus is one of the most strategically located cities uh, for the Roman Empire. Here's a map. Let me show you where Ephesus is. You can see, yeah, Ephesus is real big there. You see where Greece is and the islands of Greece and the boot just to the left of that. Well, move in the other direction toward the east, and you see the Aegean Sea. And on the eastern shore, about halfway up at the Aegean Sea, is the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was the third largest port city across the Mediterranean, which made it the third most important city for Rome behind Alexandria and Egypt and Rome herself. Now, at the time of the Apostle Paul, there were about 300,000 people who lived in the city of Ephesus, which means that was a really big city, especially back then. It had a theater that would seat over 3,000 people. It had a temple that was dedicated to Diana, a prophetess, and that was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. It was a very opulent people, opulent temple. People would come through, and they would visit this temple, and they would, um, and just because it was a place, it was like a tourist destination, if you would. And so Paul spent three years there in Ephesus, and he stayed there. I mean, three years is a pretty long time for Paul to stay anywhere, but he spent a lot of time there. And the reason why Paul spent so much time there is he was preaching the gospel. He was sharing the gospel with people. They would come to Christ. He was discipling people there, and he reached people for the Lord that were traveling through Ephesus. Because it was a port city, there were a lot of sailors, there were a lot of merchants, a lot of tradesmen. There was a lot of soldiers that were coming through town, and Paul was sharing the gospel with all these people who were coming and going through the city of Ephesus. And so he used, kind of like what we might think of, I think I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, a honeybee strategy, where he would pollinate people with the gospel, he would share the gospel with them, they'd come to Christ, he'd disciple them, and then he would send them back to their home towns, their home areas. And we see evidence of this in Acts chapter 19 and verse 10. It says, this went on, Paul in Ephesus, preaching in Ephesus, discipling the believers in Ephesus for two years, so that all the Jews and the Greeks, that is the Gentiles, who lived in the province of Asia, heard the word of the Lord. Um, and so what ends up happening is in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, there's these churches that are mentioned in Asia Minor, which is just off to the east of Ephesus, form kind of a semicircle around Ephesus, cities like Pergamum, cities like Philadelphia, like Laodicea, and these seven churches of Revelation. And the way that those churches were founded is not because Paul went to those cities, went to Laodicea, went to Philadelphia, and preached the gospel. No, no, that's not what Paul did. He preached in Ephesus, discipled people in Ephesus, and then they went back to their hometowns. We learned that a couple weeks ago with Colossians. And they pollinated the people in their own communities. Churches were founded there, and that's how the gospel spread uh, so rapidly. Now, uh, this morning, we're going to take a look at Ephesus. Anyway, it won't be the first time today. Ephesians chapter 2. So uh, if you would flip over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read together verses 11 through 14. I'm going to ask you to stand. So go ahead and let's stand up for the reading of God's word. And remember, we do this week in and week out. I was, I was uh, this past week when we were on a missions trip, I was walking around and I was, I was kind of grilling some of the people who work there saying, who is God? Who is Jesus? What is the Bible? Who is the Holy Spirit? I was just curious for the answers that I would get. And so I got lots of times I would get, well, I believe that, or I think that. I said, hold on, let me stop you right there. 
It doesn't matter what you think. Y'all know that, right? You, you, we do this every Sunday. What matters is what God thinks, and we don't have to wonder because he wrote it down. So we stand up each and every week to read from the scriptures to remind ourselves that this is where truth comes from. So let's read together Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, and then we'll jump to verse 19. Okay, here we go. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. You may be seated. Thank you all so much. Well, what I want to do, you've got some background now. You know where Ephesus was. You know where Paul was writing to. You know that he was there for about three years sharing the gospel and discipling the believers. Now we want to consider the content of the letter itself. Um, the, the Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians, is part of what we might refer to in scholarly world as part of the prison epistles. And the reason it's called the prison epistles, along with Philippians, along with Colossians, along with the letter of Philemon, is because Paul writes this letter in between the years 61 and 62 A.D. from jail. Paul is in Rome. He's appealed to Caesar. He's taken his case uh, for his trial all the way up to Caesar, and he's waiting his turn to be, have, be heard by Caesar. He ends up getting his head chopped off. Things don't go very well for him. But nevertheless, he's waiting uh, his turn to be heard by Caesar. And while he's waiting, he's under house arrest in Rome. He's in chains. And so he writes these letters from house arrest, if you would, from chains, if you would. Okay. So if you remember a couple weeks ago, we said that these prison epistles are broken up into two basic, basically two sections. The first section is where we deal with the theological truths. Paul says there's some questions that each of these churches have, some things theologically, doctrinally that they're wrestling with. And so Paul gives some theological direction, some doctrinal teaching about some specific issues. And then the second half of the letter, the second section of these letters, is where Paul gives his practical, his everyday Christian living stuff, where he talks about husbands and wives and parenting and children and employees and employers. He gives the very practical stuff. And in the letter of Ephesians, we see this play out. Um, and what we want to do this morning, I'm not going to get to the practical stuff because we're doing a survey here. We just want to consider what is the theological, the doctrinal truth that Paul's trying to convey through the letter of Ephesians. So we're going to focus on chapters 1, 2, and 3 and try and mine out what is the essential theological truth that Paul's trying to convey to this church in Ephesus. Well, to figure that out, and a lot of people get this wrong because they miss something, uh, to figure that out, uh, we, need to f we, need to fig we need to see the contrast between the words you and the words we. You say, really? Yeah, seriously. And this is where a lot of people miss, miss what's going on in this letter, the central idea that Paul's trying to communicate. Um, it's because they don't focus on the difference, the contrast between the words you and the words we. Let me explain. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 12. He says, in order that we who were first to hope in Christ and that's compared with you in the very next verse, verse 13, and you also were included in Christ. Chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sin. And then verse 3, and we 
also used to live in the lust of our flesh. Chapter 2 and verse 17. Christ came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to us who were near. Now we could go on and on all through this letter and you would see this contrast between the you and the we that Paul is referring to. Everybody follow that. Nobody snoozing on me yet, right? It's good stuff. Hang in there with me. The problem is we've got to figure out who is the you and who is the we. Well, Paul tells us right here in the letter. Look at chapter 2 and verse 11. He says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles. This is non-Jewish people. This is people who did not grow up as a part of national Israel, didn't have family that were connected to national Israel, weren't celebrating Yom Kippur, weren't going down to Jerusalem to, for their, with their Passover lamb each year, weren't participating in Judaism in any way, weren't Jewish. So the non-Jewish people in the world, Jewish people call Gentiles. And so the you in this verse are the Gentiles. But more specifically, he says, it's the Gentiles who have now come to Christ. So it's Gentile believers. It's non-Jewish people who are believers. That's the you. And then uh, who is the we? Well, he says, verse two, or chapter 2 and verse 11, he continues, Therefore, remember that formerly you, who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, call that by those of us who call themselves or ourselves the circumcision. So he's referring to the we here, and the we are the circumcision. And so in this, he's saying it's the Jewish people. So the you that he keeps talking about here in the letter are the Gentile believers, and the we are the Jewish believers. Jewish people who grew up observing the laws of Moses, making their sacrifices at the temple, all those sorts of things, but then have recognized that Christ is the Messiah, and they've given their life to Christ, so they become Jewish believers, okay? Got the difference? I'm not sure. You do, but I'm going to keep going. Now watch Paul make this theological point. He tells us, chapter 2 and verse 12, remember that at that time you were, and he lists off some stuff here. He's talking about the you here, the Gentile believers. At one time, he says, number one, you were separated from Christ. You were, number two, excluded from citizenship in Israel. Number three, you were foreigners or strangers to God's covenant of promise. Number four, the you were without hope. Number five, the you were without God in the world. So the you are separated, excluded, foreigners, without hope, living without God in their life in the world. This is not a pretty picture that Paul paints here of the people who were Gentiles before they came to Christ. He's saying that's what your life was like before you gave your life to Jesus. Verse 13, but now, don't you love but now? Right? He's going to paint a little bit better picture here. But now, verse 13, in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. He says, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he, the Lord Jesus himself, has made the two, that is both groups, both Jewish believers and Gentile believers, these two groups, he says, into one, destroying the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 16, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. And here comes the main point. You ready? That's my little trumpet announcing that the main point is coming, okay? You hung with me this far. Listen to this, chapter 2, verse 19. We read it a few moments ago. Consequently, because Christ through his blood has brought Gentiles and Jewish together, 
in Christ, chapter 2, verse 19. Consequently, as a result, you Gentiles who were once separated, foreigners, all those sorts of things, without God, without hope, now, he says, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but are fellow citizens with God's people. That is, you have become the children of God. You've been adopted into the family of God. And that was Paul's point. And you say, well, la-di-da, right? Hallelujah, amen, brother. Um, it doesn't mean, it doesn't sound like it's all that great of a thing to us, but you've got to understand, in the first century, this was revolutionary. For Paul to suggest that Gentile people could be on an even plane with Jewish people, at least from a Jewish perspective. Let me show you an example of this. Acts chapter 22. Paul was speaking to a group of Jewish people on the Temple Mount. He's in Jerusalem, and he told them what had happened to him on the road to Damascus where he'd given his life to Christ. He'd, Christ had revealed himself to him through a blinding light. And then Acts chapter 22, verse 17. So he's sharing this with these people, in these Jewish people who have not come to Christ. Jewish people in Jerusalem, and they're enthralled with what Paul's saying. They're, they're right there with him on the sermon. And then all of a sudden, chapter, two, verse, chapter 22, verse 17 happens. Paul said, when I returned to Jerusalem after his Damascus Road experience, I was praying, and the Lord said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately. Why? Because they, the Jewish people, will not accept your testimony that I'm the Messiah. And so Paul's recounting, he's telling this crowd, he's recounting what had happened to him back when he had become a Christian. Verse 21, then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away, because the Jewish people aren't going to want to hear what you have to say, I will send you far away to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. Now look at the crowd's reaction. Verse 22, the crowd listened to Paul, they were right there with him, hanging in there on that sermon, until... He said this, the word Gentile, and then they raised their voices and they shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. Well, if there was any doubt about how the Jewish people felt about Gentiles, there you go, right there. I mean, here's somebody just suggest that Gentile people be brought into the family of God, that people who, who the, I mean, the Jewish people regarded Gentiles as dogs. They literally called them I mean, that was their, as, as scum, as, as no good, as uh, worthless, as beneath them. And so there was a real snobbery, a snootiness, if you would, uh, of Jewish people toward the rest of the world. What did Paul do wrong in this sermon? Well, he said the word Gentile, suggesting that they be brought into the family of God. And this, uh, this having said that, it gave... Uh, birth to the wrath and the vehemence of these Jewish people. You say, well, Gordon, you're so, you're so simple. You just, you just miss the obvious every time. These are Jewish people that have not given their lives to Christ. They're not Christians. So, of course, they would act this way. They don't have the Holy Spirit operating in their life. Well, hang on just a second. I'm going to show you one other example over in Acts chapter 11 where some Jewish people who were Christians Jewish by culture, Jewish by background, but had put their faith and trust in Jesus, had this very same response. Look at, uh, well, in Acts chapter 10, I'll give you a little prelude to the verses we're going to look at. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is told by the Holy Spirit to go and preach uh, the gospel to this fellow named Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman soldier. He was actually over a whole uh, legion of men. 
And uh, Cornelius uh, was a God-fearer. That is, he regarded the God of the Jewish people with respect, but yet he wasn't a believer. And so he goes to the house of Cornelius, and he tells Cornelius about Jesus. And while he's preaching, right in the middle of the sermon, never seen this happen here before, but right in the middle of the sermon, Cornelius, the Holy Spirit, falls on him. He gives his life to Christ. He gets baptized. He go, his whole family uh, gives their life to Christ. They get baptized, the whole bit. Um, Paul comes to report about how this Gentile family has given their life to Christ. And he comes to report it to, uh, the, to, the, to, to the disciples, to James, to John, to Bartholomew, to Nathaniel, to, to Matthew, to all the disciples. And so Acts chapter 11 and verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So that when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised, that is the Jewish Christians, the circumcised believers, and what's the next word? What do they do? They criticize him. They criticize Peter. Look at verse 3. You went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them? Why would you do that, right? What were you thinking? Where was your mind, Peter? Why would you, a Jewish person, go and mix and mingle with those dogs? Why would you go do that? I mean, none of these folks. And remember, this isn't just, you know, the believers in the pew. This is, this is James, the Lord's brother. This is John, the beloved disciple. This is the, the apostles. This is their gut reaction. I mean, none of them said, how wonderful. Gentile people get to go to heaven. Gentile people get to have eternal life. This is great. This is what we had always hoped for. No, they're, th- they're going, what are you thinking, Peter? That's their response. There's a snobbery that existed. And so Paul says, back to Ephesians 2 and 19, that the Gentiles are no longer foreigners. They're no longer aliens. But now they've become part of the family of God, fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Do you see how revolutionary this is? What a change of heart, a change of perspective, that all of these lives matter to God. And this theological truth is what Paul refers to in the book of Ephesians, and don't miss this, because if you're going back to the book of Ephesians, you're going to read it through again, you need to know this, as the mystery of the church, the mystery of the church. Nobody understood this up until now. Um, Everybody knew, the Jewish people knew back in the Old Testament that all the world was going to be blessed through Abraham. And so they anticipated the day that the rest of the world would kneel down to the Jewish nation and to Israel and would want to become part of it. But they didn't see it playing out exactly this way. And uh, so this is what Paul calls the mystery of the church. This entirely new entity after the resurrection of Christ where both Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers, Gentiles, would be equal in God's sight. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 3, he says, The mystery made known to me by revelation. In other words, Paul's saying, I didn't make this stuff up. This came from God. This wasn't my idea. This is God's idea. In verse 6, he says, And this mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are equal heirs together with Jewish Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And the Jewish believers, again, are going, unheard of! Couldn't be! No! It's not possible. 
And Paul says, that's exactly what God has done. By the way, this is not a last-minute decision that God made. Oh, I'm just going to make a change on the fly. Look at Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 11. It says, all of this was done according to God's eternal purpose. Friends, the very minute that Adam and Eve fell, the very minute that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God had the church in mind. One body, all coming together, all equal in Christ. So let's summarize. The theological truth that Paul's laying out for us in Ephesians was a revolutionary truth at that time. And that truth is restated in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 where Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek or Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one. We are all equal in Christ. Therefore, when we meet another brother or another sister in Christ, earthly differences don't doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. doesn't matter what your financial situation is. It doesn't matter what language you speak, what color you are, what culture you come from. It doesn't matter if you have blonde hair or black hair or brown hair or green hair or no hair. It doesn't matter. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ equally without discrimination of any kind. That's the truth of the book of Philippians. That's what, what Paul, what the gospel is, is communicating there. All right. That's the end of our theological discussion, right, of this, what's going on here in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And so that means it's time for us to ask the question we ask each and every week, which is, what difference does all this make to my life, right? So, Gordon, I appreciate you sharing up there. You're working hard this morning. But how does this impact me? I've got to get the kids off to volleyball practice. I've got to get, you know, off to work in the morning. It's really hot outside. What difference does any of this make to me? Well, let's talk about that. One simple verse. I think, I think the implication, the, the, the practical implication is very clear. Look at John chapter 3 and verse 16. Jesus is already telling us this. Uh, Paul has to spell it out in more concrete terms, but Jesus already was telling us this. Look at John chapter 3 and verse 16. He says, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life or everlasting life. And I've shared this verse with you before. This is what's referred to as a conditional promise. Some of the promises in the Bible are not conditional. They have no conditions put upon them. It's just God's promise to us. He'll never destroy the earth again. That's God's promise to us. It doesn't depend on what we do. In this particular occasion, the promise that God gives us is eternal life. But there's a condition to meeting, to being able to receive the promise. And the condition is you have to believe in Jesus. Now, that belief in Jesus is more than just you know, agreeing that Jesus was a real person, that he died on the cross. Belief in, because even the devil knows that, but belief in Jesus is recognizing that the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross, that his shed blood on the cross is sufficient to take care of your sin problem. And putting your trust in Jesus' work on the cross, putting your trust in that, and being willing to and bringing, saying, God, I'm not going to bring my good works. I'm not going to bring my philanthropy. I'm not going to bring my recycling. I'm not going to bring any of the good things that I've done in this world or my religious activities. I'm just going to trust in what you did on the cross and that that is all that's necessary for me to have eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. And so that's the condition to meeting the promise. But Jesus throws a little word in there. Pop our words back up. Um, and it's the word, whoever. Or I like in the King James Version it says, whosoever. See, Jesus says this promise is available and open to everyone. 
That's the point Paul's trying to make here. Both neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, it's open to everyone. But there's a condition to receiving the promise. This morning we have some friends of mine, and I'll introduce them here in just a minute. But uh, we're going to have a little video we're going to show you. And this is this captures their ministry in video form, what they do. Um, and it's a ministry to those on the outskirts, on the perimeter of society, uh, the whosoever that perhaps society has forgotten. This is why we pray, because I told you we weren't going to. So I'm going to go in and ask for the um, the owner, but you're going to have to get it from like right now. Well, let me. That don't need I wanted you guys to see this before it kind of bamps up. Three thousand women are legally registered to do sex work. It's not counting the nine and the 10 and 11 year old little girls who are surviving through prostitution. So anybody who's working on the streets who's not registered can easily reach up to five or 6,000 here. And it's not even counting La Paz, by the way. Like La Paz is another thousand. This is the city of Alauto. This is the slum city of the capital, La Paz. This is the red light district, and they call this 20 de Octubre. So we're here in the late afternoon, and this is about the time of day that girls start coming to the brothels to work. Uh, there's a few girls ahead of us that are um, probably going to get a bite to eat, and then they'll start working. They'll work until they um, fill their quota. Their quota is between 10 and 20 tricks a night, um, depending on the brothel. So if you fill your quota, you're allowed to go home. If you don't fill your quota, you have to stay until you receive enough clients. Um, a girl will get between a dollar and three dollars per trick, and then the brothel owners will get their cut from that as well. In this street here, there's 13 to 14 different brothels that we visit on a, on a weekly basis. Very few organizations are working with these women. For the 3,000 women that work, there are probably 10 people that reach out to these women in the brothels and try to offer them the hope of Christ. We are the only evangelical organization working with these women. Word Made Flesh is committed to honoring women in prostitution and to helping support their families move to abundant life. We didn't really know what we were getting into. When you walk into a brothel, the smells are strong. As soon as you walk in, you, you smell the urine. It smells like everything that's related to sex. Alcohol. You hear the music, the beats beating. The lights are down. The red lights are up. You walk in uh, to just a small hallway and you're bumping shoulders with all the clients, all the men, and men are often just milling around, just shopping. He'll whisper in her ear, you know, like, how much? And they'll come to an agreement on a price, and she takes that money and brings it to the brothel owner, and then takes the client into her room. 
we've wanted to quit probably <laughs> hundreds of times. Um, originally we stayed because um, it took a long time to earn their trust and to get to know them. And, and when we finally did, I, we just felt like we couldn't leave them then. <laughs> because I believe in what the Lord can do. She saw the man in white. Yes. <laughs> and I kind of rather just stay in the fight and try than be overwhelmed by it all and quit. So I think when we came here, the, the Lord broke our heart for the, the women and the children that are, that are caught in the, the commercial sex trade. But the Lord slowly over time started to break my heart for the men. And I began to realize that could be me. That could be me walking into that brothel, being unfaithful to my wife. Every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is actually looking for God. And I believe that. I believe that there's a hole inside of them when, when that isn't filled by the Holy Spirit. That, that they look for many, many other things to, to bring them pleasure in life. When we as men and women of God look at pornography, we directly perpetuate the, the systems that land a lady inside of these doors. And so if there's one thing that we can do, it's just stop looking at porn. We need to maintain an integrity behind that screen that we look at so that girls don't wind up behind this door. There's a lot of tragedy that we have to deal with and and it never really gets easier. But one story of transformation can keep us going for a long time. When you start to see that domino effect and you start to see story after story of miracle and transformation, that's what we live for. I can't preach without it. So.
Jealous for me, love's like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. And all those I am unaware of these afflictions eclipse by glory. And I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affection. 